I do things a little bit different than some other speakers do. I got to tell you a little story. Back in 19, late 1943, early 44, I had the opportunity to attend a naval diving school. And I, uh, I became a U.S. Navy deep sea diver. And as soon as we were out of school, they sent us immediately to Pearl Harbor and, and we were working on the ships that were sunk over there. And uh, my name is Flannery, and that's a bit of Irish. And my diving officer in Pearl Harbor, he was an Irishman too, and as he went down to the list on the first day on the job, he hit my name and he says, Flannery, suit up. And I wasn't really too excited about that because I didn't really want to be a diver anyhow. I just wanted to be able to say I was a diver, see. <laughs> but I suited up and, uh, and I stepped off into the water and my feet hit the deck of that ship. And the water was a little murky and I couldn't see too well so I just stood there for a while. And, and uh, my vision began to pick up a little bit and I could make out parts of the ship, the hatch and a winch and a windlass and some other things. And, uh, but all that time that I stood there, the same thought was running through my mind, just constantly running through my mind. And that thought was, what the hell am I doing here? And I get that same feeling inside every time I stand behind one of these things here. <laughs> But it's good to be here at the Roundup, and uh, you know, my wife Marty and I have uh, attended a lot of these things. In fact, we attended the first one when Clancy again was the, the speaker. And we've always enjoyed this thing, but I guess I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about me and how alcohol effect affected me and how Al Alcoholics Anonymous affected me. And I have to tell you this. Well, my name's Pete, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> but, you know, uh, had I stayed sober from my first meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, I'd have about 34 or 35 years of sobriety. And the way it is, the truth of it is, uh, February the 4th of this year, I, I celebrated 20 years on the program. And if we have any mathematical geniuses in the crowd tonight, you can put your, your minds to work and you can figure out how long I played games with this program. It was really strange for me because I came to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous and I liked it immediately. I liked the people. I liked the way they treated me. I liked that acceptance. But there was that little guy that lived back here behind my right ear that kept whispering to me and it kept telling me, hey, these are sure nice people, but I'm not like them. And so with that attitude, I didn't find it necessary to read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous or to try to apply any of the 12 steps of this program to my life, and I didn't. You know, we come to, or I shouldn't say we, but I came to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous with everything I was at that moment. And I brought that right into AA with me. I brought all my character defects, all my attitudes, all my innermost feelings and my innermost secrets 
when I attended my first meeting. And I hung right on to all of that stuff. And I didn't do anything else. So I would come here and when the pressure got on, and it did, and it always came from the same sources, family, wife, employer, police, that sort of thing. I'd come to Alcoholics Anonymous and I'd stay here for a few months. And there's, there's a strange thing that takes place with a fellow like me, you know, if you just stop drinking and do nothing else, things get a little better. You got more money in your pocket, they like you better on the job, they like you better at home. I got back in the big bed. A lot of good things happen if you just stop drinking. But nothing changes up here, right there. And that, my friends, is where I live. That's where I spend every moment of my life, it's right here. And when that place is filled with fear, with hatred, self-hatred, loneliness, all the good things that so many alcoholics live with, then that place isn't worth a damn for a living. See, I had to come to Alcoholics Anonymous to learn some things. And I have to tell you the truth about what it was like for me. I stayed here for four years once, experiencing total abstinence from alcohol. And I did that by osmosis, I guess, because I came to a lot of meetings, I got involved in service work. Uh, I did a lot of things in AA, but never once did I change this attitude. I didn't go read the book and I didn't do the steps. I just hung around here. At the end of that four years, one day my wife and our children were gone and I was home alone. And it was a hot summer afternoon and I'd mowed the lawn and trimmed the shrubs and had the place looking real slick. And I was standing at the kitchen window I was washing my hands in the kitchen sink and I was looking out admiring my work. And the thought hit my mind, God it was hot and I was sweaty and I thought, man a drink, it really tastes good. And in a very short period of time, I'm talking about seconds, I gave myself all the reasons why it would be okay. God, I haven't had a drink for four years. Things are going well at home, things are going great on the job. I should be able to handle one. So I went to the liquor cabinet that no longer exists in my home and I grabbed a bottle and I poured about that much in a water glass and I dumped it in and nothing happened. Oh, my belly got a little warm and you know my feet got a little light and everything was kind of neat for a little while. but. The floor didn't open up and swallow me in. So what that one drink did for me, you see, it convinced me absolutely that I had been right all the time. And if I used my God-given intelligence and a little common sense, I could drink like my brothers. See, I'm the only alky in my family, at least the only admitted one. 
but I, I didn't drink any more than that one drink for five weeks. I drank one drink a day. God, that gives me the shivers now. Just think about it. <laughs> one drink a day for five weeks, and in the sixth week I was in the right place at the right time with the right people, and they had the right amount of booze, and I went over the top, and I got drunk. And I stayed that way for five years, and it damn near killed me. In the last couple of years that I drank, uh, a lot of bad things happened. You know, my, my life deteriorated very rapidly. And, and I moved from the main level of our home to the basement. I had a little bunk down there. And uh, you see, I always used to say, well, you know, it's more comfortable down there and it's cooler down there. And it was plenty cool up on the main floor, too, I'll tell you. But uh, I could go down that basement and hide, and I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to answer the phone. I didn't have to answer the door. I didn't have to talk to anybody. I could go down in that basement and hide. And many times in those last few months that I drank, I would lay in that basement and just bawl my head off because of the condition of my life and because of the things that were happening here. <laughs> Did you do that, Terry? But you see, I still had enough of that ego. And that ego caused me many times to stand up, you're just set right up in bed. I guess I better put my hands in my pockets, that must be what's doing that. But I would uh, just set up in bed and I would... Many times I've sat up in bed and, and dried those tears and, and I would say to myself, God damn it, I can handle this thing. I can handle her. You know, tomorrow it's going to be different. I'm not going to drink tomorrow. And I would get into that fantasy land and I would start dreaming about the wonderful trips we were going to take and all the good things that were going to happen to us when I took care of all of this. And then I'd go to sleep or I'd pass out, whichever. And uh, when I would wake the next morning, every nerve in my body would be screaming for alcohol. And that same mind that had made all the plans the night before and dreamed the dreams, that same, same mind would say, Pete, we've got to have a drink. And I'd buy into it. And I'd get out of the house as quickly as I could. I'd get my clothes on and up the stairs I'd go. But unfortunately, or fortunately, however you look at this, my wife comes from Minnesota. 
she comes from a rural community, and uh, there were 17 kids in her family. Same mama, same papa. You know, that Minnesota have awful cold winters, you know. And it, but back in that country, they believe in breakfast. And I knew going up those stairs that I was going to have to face those two fried eggs. And I didn't want to. But I had to eat them. And I would sit down and I'd stuff them in and out the door I'd go. Down to the 7-Eleven and I'd buy that bottle of wine. And I'd sit right there in the parking lot and I'd drink half of it. And then just wait for the magic to happen. Wait for that alcohol to hit my bloodstream and do what it was going to do. To make it possible for me to go to work and do the things I knew I had to do that day. Well, at the end I was going through about from five to seven-fifths a day of that wonderful Elector Red Mountain Tokay. It was really great stuff. You could get a full quart for six bits. Besides the wine I drank, I got, everybody knew I was a drinker, and they, you know, I worked on the Portland waterfront, and there was a lot of liquor going around, and, uh, and they were always offering me a drink, and I, I never refused. But on the fourth day of February, 1975, at work, it was about 2.30 in the afternoon, and the end of it came for me. See, I'd been contemplating suicide for quite a long time, and I had it all figured out just how I was going to handle it. We have a machinery tower at the place I worked, and uh, it's 228 feet from the platform to the blacktop. And I was going up there, and I was going to—I was going to take a dive because I knew it would only take seconds, and it would be done. One time, I made it from the platform to the outside of the guardrail. And I found at that point that I didn't have the courage to let go. So I was going to have to live with this stuff. And it was only a matter of another month or so when that afternoon came. When I knew that I couldn't face another day. Not one more sunrise could I face. And so it was either suicide or do something about my life. And I knew I didn't have the courage to take my life. And the only thing I knew to do was Alcoholics Anonymous because I'd been here before. And I came back that night still drunk. You don't sober up between 2.30 in the afternoon and 8 o'clock at night. But I attended probably the finest meeting that I've ever attended to this date yet in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because the people at that meeting that night were talking about how I felt in here and down here. I was pretty sick man physically, mentally, and spiritually. But they talked about how I felt. And I made a commitment at that meeting that night that I would do whatever I had to do to find the sobriety I had seen in other men and women in this program. Those people that were here, when every time I would come back, they'd still be here, and their lives seemed to be in order, and they seemed to be happy about the whole deal. On my way home from that meeting that night, I, uh, it was a cold, black, rainy February night. 
And I stopped my old truck by the Meriwether Lewis schoolyard, and I walked out into the middle of their athletic field, and for the very first time in my life, I dropped to my knees, and I asked God that I did not understand for help. Now, maybe it's a coincidence. I don't know, but I don't think so. You see, when I woke the next morning, every nerve in my body was screaming for alcohol. But I've never had another drink since. And believe this or not, I have never had the compulsion to drink as I understand the compulsion to drink. That thing that starts here and just consumes my whole being I've never experienced that since. I am one that I believe that God removed the compulsion to drink from me on that night. So I started doing the other things that uh, I feel are necessary to do in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And one of the first ones was I started hanging around with the winners. Those people that were always here. See, prior to that time, there was only one guy in the program that I spent much time with that was a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. The people I spent most of my time with were those people who were doing exactly the same thing that I was doing, hanging around. See? And hanging around just don't cut it. It is my belief, if I hadn't have found the willingness to get off of my butt and do the things that are necessary to do in this program to find recovery. The book, the 12 steps, the fellowship, meetings, and willingness to change. I'd never had that before, but I had it then, and I have it tonight. And that one guy that I hung around with when I was here earlier, he was still here too, so I asked him to be my sponsor. And he took me on. And I know there's people here in the room tonight that, that knew him. His name was Chet C. He was a, a central office manager in Portland for years. But he, uh, he was a kind man. And he didn't really like to hurt your feelings. And there was times in my recovery when I needed to hear the truth, good or bad or otherwise. And we had an old Irishman in Portland, his name was Scully, Bill Scully, and he's gone now, but he was an old Irishman, he was a mercenary, he spent, he was in seven different armies and told me one night, he says, Pete, my business was killing. But he had that ability to look you right in the eye and tell you who you were, or at least who he thought you were, and what you'd better do if you were going to sober up. And I was suffering with a problem that had to do with some things that I was really battling with. And I didn't want to go to my sponsor because, well, I didn't want him necessarily to know about what I was troubling with. So I went to old Bill Scully, and he had an old apartment in downtown Portland, and we were up in his kitchen. And I, I told him my tale of woe the things that I was being troubled with. And when I finished, he shared with me his experience. 
And when he finished, I, I said the wrong thing. I said, yeah, Bill, but I think, and that's all I got out of my mouth. And he had one of them old kitchen por porcelain tables, you know, and he hit that thing with his fist so hard that the pictures on the wall just vibrated, you know. And ladies, you'll have to excuse me, but I'm going to tell these gentlemen exactly what he told me. He looked me right in the eye and he said, you ignorant son of a bitch. He says, haven't you realized yet it's what you think that got you here? And he scared the hell out of me and he attracted my attention, I'll tell you. But he also made me think. And all the problems that I have ever suffered with outside of AA and inside of AA, those problems have been caused by my thinking. You know, I've thought about this so many times. If I could have corrected all my character defects, if I could have done all the things that Alcoholics Anonymous, the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous suggest, I would have done it years ago so that I wouldn't have had to suffer through all this stuff. I would have done it, but I couldn't, or I wouldn't, or I didn't know what to do. I just didn't have it. So I suffered with them, and it led me right into alcoholism and beyond. We were at a meeting one night, and I was early on in the program, and it was at that point that so many of us reach when we're new and really getting into AA, not just fiddling around with this thing. Uh, I, uh, the chairman of the meeting called on me, and boy, I'll tell you, I laid a really profound message on the group. Well, you know that. And at coffee time, I was standing talking to somebody, and Chet walked up to me, and he just stopped for a second and he says, Petey, he says, I'd like to have you know that intelligence is not necessarily an asset to sobriety and turned around and walked off. And I thought, what the hell does he mean by that? You know, that took me a few days to figure that out. You know, he's trying to tell me to keep it simple. Don't be so smart. Get some of that ego and intellectual crap out of the way so you can learn what's going on around AA here, you know. And another time you've heard this statement by new people around AA several times, I know that. I've heard it a lot, and I got up one night and I said, well, I was one of those stubborn ones. Here he come again. He said, Pete, he says, I'd like to have you know that stubborn and stupid are on the same page in the dictionary. Way he went. But... He was a great man, and during that four-year period, or that five-year period that I drank after being here for four years, Marty and I once, we were, one night, we were, were sitting there watching television, and Chet usually called about once a month just to make sure I was still alive, you know. And the phone rang, and something in my head said, that's Chet. And Marty got up to answer the phone, and I said, honey, if that's Chet, tell him I'm asleep. And so she answered the phone, and it was Chet. And evidently he says, well, Chet, is Pete there? Or Marty, is Pete there? And she said, well, yes, he's here, but he told me to tell you he's asleep. 
How many Alanons we got in here tonight? <laughs> I used to hate that program. Yeah. But because of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, my life has changed. I'm no longer the same man inside that I was when I got here because I couldn't stand myself and I was willing to change. I was willing to open my mind and let some fresh air in and some fresh ideas and some fresh thinking. And I don't want to lead you to believe that I'm perfect and that I have all the answers because that is not the truth. I have the ability to get myself in trouble from trying the time at home, you know, by saying the wrong things, by doing the wrong things, by telling a little white lie from time to time. See, these Alamans are smart. They catch me every time. My sponsor died here about three years ago, four years ago. And when he passed away, I, I decided that I, that I would never get another sponsor because I would be betraying Chet. Now that's not good thinking. That's not good thinking. I went about six months and I finally went and found myself another man who I respected who had a lot of confidence in. It seems as though that I'm the kind of a guy that I have to have at least that one person out there that I can share my innermost things with. You know, I've done, uh, I've done some fifth steps and uh, there are things about me that I've never shared with my sponsor because he and I became very close friends. And there were some things about me that I didn't want him to know. But those things that I didn't want him to know, I shared with someone in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because I need to do that to clear away the wreckage of the past so that I don't have to live with it anymore. The amends step is a great thing for us and for me, it's really strange about some of the things that I carried in my mind for so many years that really hurt me. When I was just a little kid, so big, uh, I pulled a dirty, nasty Irish trick on my sister that hurt her, not physically, but emotionally. It hurt her, and I wouldn't apologize. And that bothered me all my life. Someone would ask me, Pete, how's your sister? And I would get that kind of a sick feeling in my stomach. Well, we were in Los Angeles at her home, and uh, everybody was in bed but she and I. And I thought, well, now's my chance. I'm going to make my amend. There's this. And I told her how sorry I was. And I asked her for her forgiveness. And you see, the payoff was, she looked at me with the blankest look on her face, and she had absolutely no recall of the incident. None. And I had suffered with it all my life. It was just one of those things that laid deep in my mind. If something was said that had to do with her, it would pop right into my thing. And that's just one thing. 
It's just one little thing. And by being thorough in our amends steps, we become free people. We become free of self. See, I have always been my biggest problem. And when I became willing to get this stuff, and that all comes through the previous steps when we learn who we are and what our problems are. You know, sometimes, I don't know about people here, but I, I hit a plateau from time to time, and I, I guess I still got a little bit of that ego there. And I'll hit this plateau, and man, things are looking good, and I square my shoulders, and I think, man, I really got a hold of this thing. And I'll go to a meeting, and some donkey in there with 30 days will say something that'll just knock me right off my chair. You know, it's something that my memory has just refused to come up with. But when they would say what they said, it had hit me. That's me. That's me. So that used to be real painful when that had happened. But then I realized the value of hearing you talk about me. Because then I knew. And then I could do something about it. Because that willingness is still there to do what I have to do to recover from this disease and to be a freer man. How are we doing time-wise here, girls? Kids? Well, I'll never go that long, Jack. It's amazing how far-reaching the program of Alcoholics Anonymous can be. My brother, before his die, before he died, uh, he was a whiskey salesman in Los Angeles, or in uh, Southern California. And uh, my first experience with real blackout was after a family reunion, and we were at his home, and boy, I'll tell you, I was in seventh heaven because there was booze everywhere. <coughs> Excuse me. We were going to leave the, the family reunion. It was ending, and uh, my wife and family and I were going to Tahunga, California, which is 212 miles down the freeway. And my son at that time was only about that big. And when we left the house, my brother walked out, and we were packed, and everybody was in the car, and we were ready to go. And he come out with a fifth of VO. And he says, kid, he says, we'll have one more drink together before you go. And I had one, and he had one. He put the lid back on, and he says, slip it into the seat. You'll probably need it. I remember waving goodbye. And that's the last I remember. And evidently, I drove the freeways, drove to Tahunga that I didn't even know where it was at. And when I woke up, when my brain kicked in again, I was sitting in my sister's living room in Tahunga. And that was the first time that I admitted to myself that I might have a little problem. But it took me another several years to get here after that. I'd like to, uh, I'd like to leave you with this. You see, I am the only person on the face of the earth that knows the truth about what's going on up here. So many alcoholics that I've talked to, both men and women, 
we have agreed on one thing, that we have the talent to BS people. Now, I always wanted that acceptance from you, and I wanted to be a part of you. But in order for me to gain that, I had to BS you. And I did that in AA, too. I had that talent to lie to you and hope that you believed it. And that's where a lot of the hurt came from. It's from that ability to lie. And that's some of the things we have to work on in Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, there was a lady that stood at this podium many years back. Her name was Dottie S. or Dottie Short. And she was a wonderful woman. And Dottie was the retreat master, mistress, at a men's retreat that we had at Sports Acres a lot of years ago. And between a couple of the sessions, they, we were standing on the front porch, Dottie and several of us guys asking questions. One guy says, Dottie, what do you think God's will is for you? And without hesitation, she said, God's will for me is to be happy, joyous, and free. And she followed that very quickly by saying, but I have the ability to screw it up. And that's the humanness of me. See? And I'm so glad that they put that in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, that we are not perfect and we're not striving for, protection, for perfection. Because in my case, at least, it's not possible. I don't have that much time left yet. I know there are people in Alcoholics Anonymous today who think they're awful close. And I feel sorry for him. You see, if we, if we ever reach perfection, if I ever become perfect, this is the last roundup you'll ever see me at. Because I'll have no need to be here. You people are my, you're my mentors. You're my sponsors. You're my people. And I'm comfortable with you. But I would like to leave you with this now. I am the only one who knows what's going on up here. And if I'm lying to me, I can lie to you and get away with it sometime. But if I'm lying to me, and I'm in a heap of trouble, and big trouble. I thank you very much for letting me be here tonight. I thank you for letting me speak to you. I thank uh, the committee for our dinner tonight, and it's been a pleasure. Have a good conference.